we're going to have 10 billion people to feed by 2050. The inefficiencies of cycling crops through animals really make no sense at all. It takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of that animal's flesh. It's literally nine times as much land, nine times as much water, nine times as many pesticides and herbicides. Eight calories are burned off by the chicken or go into creating feathers or blood or something that we don't consume. Raising live animals in order to eat them is at best 800% food waste. Let's give people the meat that they want, but let's make it in a way that doesn't cause all of those harms. You can feed cells directly and lose all of that inefficiency. inefficiency. That's Bruce Friedrich. And this is episode 148 of The Proof Podcast. Hey friends, welcome back to another Wednesday Wisdoms episode. I hope you've been keeping well. For any first timers joining us, better late than never. Welcome. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. Each week here, I sit down with guests from all over the world to talk about nutrition science, health, wellness, and sustainability. Midweek, I drop a Wednesday Wisdoms episode which is a condensed information-packed throwback delivered by a previous guest. Today's wisdom is brought to us by Bruce Friedrich, the founder and president of Good Food Institute, a non-for-profit organization developing the roadmap for a sustainable, secure, and just global protein supply. Their objective? To create a world where alternative proteins are no longer alternative. If you're a regular listener or perhaps have read chapter nine of my book, The Proof is in the Plants, you will be well aware by now that climate change and planetary health is a very time-sensitive issue. The clock has well and truly started and the race is on to innovate and reshape our food systems to sustainably feed 10 to 11 billion people by 2050. And here's the thing. I've come to learn, no matter which way you crunch the numbers or what types of agricultural practices you evaluate, organic, regenerative, etc., we can't achieve this. We can't achieve this by doubling down on traditional meat sourced from animals. The reality of the matter, friends, is that Compared to producing plants for human consumption, producing animal foods is far, far worse for climate change, the warming of our planet. For example, beef produces 25 to 50 times more greenhouse gas emissions per gram of protein compared to tofu and different types of beans. It doesn't stop there. Greenhouse gas emissions are just one measure of a food's planetary impact. Animal agriculture also requires significantly more land to produce the same number of calories or grams of protein compared to plants. For example, compared to tofu, beef requires 74 times more land to produce an equal amount of protein. All of this extra land requirement, meaning tremendous amounts of deforestation and biodiversity loss. It's no wonder that right now, Excluding humans, 96% of all mammals on Earth are livestock, and just 4%, just 4% are 
are wild mammals. We have quite literally turned the world into a giant meat market. On top of this, animal agriculture is a significant source of water pollution and compared to plant foods requires significantly more freshwater per calorie or gram of protein. The list goes on and on. All of this placing us at risk of catastrophic weather events, food insecurity, water insecurity, and so on. And I get it. Most people aren't eating these foods because they don't care about the environment. It's very difficult to connect the piece of beef or lamb on our plate to the bigger system. But what I just described is what we vote for when we eat such foods. But here's the catch. While in an ideal world, everyone would shift from meat to lentils, let's be honest, that's not so realistic. At least not today anyway. Meat's become such a huge part of our culture. We love it. Fortunately, there are two industries, cellular agriculture and plant-based meat, which stand to help address this problem. Meat lovers can still enjoy their meat, just this time, with a much lower environmental footprint. And when it comes to these two industries, there is no man more across the latest innovations and news than Bruce Friedrich. Enjoy the episode, and I'll catch you on the other side. Plant-based meat is what it sounds like. It's meat made from plants. Probably a lot of people are going to have some preconceived notions and just think sort of veggie burger, veggie nuggets, or whatever, and that's plant-based meat. But the idea of plant-based meat is to actually replicate meat with plants. And it stems from the ideas of people like Pat Brown from Impossible Foods and Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat, two Browns, no relation. And the central brainstorm is just that meat is made up of lipids, amino acids, minerals, and water. That is all meat is. And plants also have lipids, aminos, minerals, and water. So up until Ethan Brown and Pat Brown, the way that veggie burgers, veggie nuggets, vegetarian meats got to us was that the soy oil industry had a bunch of protein that they didn't know what to do with. The wheat carbohydrate industry for things like pasta and bread had a lot of protein that they didn't know what to do with, and they essentially reconstituted it into something that looked like a burger or whatever else and marketed it to flexitarians, marketed it to people who wanted to eat less meat. The brainstorm of of people like Ethan Brown and Pat Brown is that, no, if we hire meat scientists and tissue engineers and chemical engineers, if we hire the right people, we can actually create meat from plants, something that has the taste, the texture, everything that people like about meat, but without the need for farms, without the need for slaughterhouses, and consequently at a much lower adverse impact across a range of issues that I know that we're going to get into. So that's plant-based meat. And then cultivated meat just takes tissue engineering for therapeutics and cross-applies it to food. So we know how to grow animal tissue. We have mostly done it for human beings, for medical applications. But you can take the concept of taking cells, bathing them in nutrients on a scaffold and growing them, um, and you can figure out how to do that for food 
And that's where cultivated meat comes from. So right now, you feed an animal, the animal's cells multiply and grow. That's what the animal getting larger, that's what's entailed. Overwhelming inefficiency in that process. Instead, you can just take a biopsy from an animal the size of a sesame seed, painless process, and feed those cells directly. So, you know, you want to grow a chicken to slaughter weight, it's going to take you six or seven weeks. You feed the cells directly, you can get that same growth in six days. Uh, so it's just two different ways of producing meat. One involves creating meat from plants, and the other involves growing actual animal meat, but growing it from cells without all of the external costs of the way we do it now. We generally put the external costs of the present way that we create meat into three buckets. The first one is global health and something like antibiotic resistance. If your listeners and viewers want to scare, they should Google the end of working antibiotics and see what comes up. You want an even bigger scare, add the word China to that. Or you could just Google pig zero and look at the front page piece in the New York Times from about six months ago. But if anybody listening to this, watching this gets sick and they need antibiotics, they're going to be put on a course of antibiotics somewhere between five and 10 days. The vast majority of farm animals are fed antibiotics for their entire lives. And it's not because the animals are sick. It's because they are kept in conditions that would make them sick if they were not fed antibiotics prophylactically. And what that means is more than 70% of antibiotics that are produced globally by the pharmaceutical industry, they're fed to animals, not fed to human beings. This is leading to antibiotic-resistant superbugs. And when you or I get sick, the antibiotics that are prescribed may not work. This literally, according to the former head of the World Health Organization, will spell the end of modern medicine. If penicillin doesn't work, uh, if the antibiotics that are used to stave off infection, if you get a cut, don't work, you're literally talking about you scrape your knee and you have to amputate your leg, sorts of outcomes. So the end of working antibiotics, the UK government released a report last year said the threat to the human race from antibiotic resistance is more certain than the threat from climate change. Similar argument can be made about the next pandemics start in animals. And this one started in a, a live market with people eating bats, it looks like. It could just as easily have started on an industrial pig farm or an industrial chicken farm. And that sort of thing, experts think, is extraordinarily likely based on the way that we confine farm animals. And just in, in a quick nutshell, we're going to have 10 billion people to feed by 2050. The inefficiencies of cycling crops through animals really make no sense at all. It takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out in the form of that animal's flesh. It's literally nine times as much land, nine times as much water, nine times as many pesticides and herbicides. What that means is you're literally throwing away eight calories for every calorie that you consume. So I suppose not literally throwing away, but eight calories are burned off by the chicken or go into creating feathers or blood or something that we don't consume, the energy we don't get from that animal. So none of your listeners or viewers would go to the refrigerator, take out eight plates of food and throw them in the trash. But that is the relationship that we enter into. 800% of the food that was grown, the crops that were grown, are burned off by the chicken or go into something that we don't consume. So people are very upset about food waste and we should be upset about food waste, something like 40% of food produced in the developed world is wasted, but just baked into the physiology of raising live animals in order to eat them is at best 800% food waste. A few years back, the UN Special Envoy on Food, a guy named Jean Ziegler, he called biofuels a human rights crime because according to the FAO, 100 million metric tons of corn and wheat were being put into biofuels 
But that same FAO report pointed out that 756 million metric tons of corn and wheat were being fed to farm animals, not even including the 85% of the global soy crop, another 200 million metric tons of soy that are fed to chickens and pigs and other farm animals. So if the economics indicate that competition for grain and wheat drives up prices and leads to global starvation and that's a human rights crime, what about something that eats up more than 10 times as much of the crops globally? I mean, it feels like a human rights crime. It's something that we are involved in when we are participating in this system. Um, But that message doesn't get through. For whatever reason, people are just not making their dietary choices on this basis for the most part. So looking for a global solution, GFIs, is let's give people the meat that they want, but let's make it in a way that doesn't cause all of those harms. You can just take the crops directly and biomimic meat with those crops, or you can feed cells directly and lose all of that inefficiency. 2009, Ethan Brown is working in clean energy. He's an MBA grad from Columbia Business School, and he's working in clean energy, and he reads Livestock's Long Shadow. His motivating thing in life is climate change, and he looks around and nobody's dealing with industrial animal agriculture. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Al Gore, is saying we need to eat 90% less meat. And he doesn't see anybody in the environmental community talking about this. He doesn't see anybody in government or business talking about this. And he has the central brainstorm, which is what came to be the Good Food Institute, the whole idea that meat is made up of things that plants also have. He reads about some research at the University of Missouri, pea protein research uh, focused on actually creating meat from plants. And he starts Beyond Meat in 2009. At the end of 2012, he has his first product. Uh, John Mackey from Whole Foods is very, very excited about this concept and signs a deal with Whole Foods to bring it in regionally. And then the next year in 2013, all across Whole Foods. It's a a chicken strip product that Bill Gates tries. And Bill Gates says, what I just ate is not just a clever meat substitute. What I just ate is the future of food. Also in 2009, Pat Brown takes a a two-year sabbatical. He's a tenured professor of biochemistry at Stanford University. And he takes a two-year sabbatical and he's going to focus his sabbatical on what he can do with his life that will allow him to make a dent in what he sees as coming climate change apocalypse. And he figures education is the way to go. So he starts organizing forums. And this guy this guy started the Public Library of Science. Like, look up Patrick Brown. He is a big shot scientist, member of the National Academies of Sciences, and really just an impressive human being, a tenured professor of biochemistry at Stanford, one of the top universities in the world. And, you know, as an academic, he thinks, I just need to tell everybody what's true. And he quickly realizes that, you know, as Pat Brown did at almost the exact same time, that that's not going to work. And so he starts Impossible Foods in 2011. And unlike most food companies, remember, Ethan starts Beyond Meat in 2009. It takes him three years to have his first product. He pulled that product actually in 2018 because he said he was embarrassed by it. It's not good enough. Pat Brown started his company in 2011, had his first product at the very end of 2016. And the thing to underline about that is that neither of them was about the business of selling good enough products. Neither of them thought that this Silicon Valley concept of MVP, minimum viable product, made sense. They want products that will satisfy meat eaters out of the gate. And that's the the central brainstorm of both of those guys. And then Josh Tetrick at a company formerly called Hampton Creek, now called Just, was doing basically the same thing, focused on eggs, also starting in 2011. So 
the first products in this vein didn't come around until 2009. And the signature products of both Beyond Beat and Impossible Foods, the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger, didn't launch until the very end of 2016. So it's, it's a pretty new endeavor. More than 90% of the people who are eating the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger, more than 90% of them are meat eaters, which makes for some, you know, sort of for those of us who are vegan, it's mildly frustrating that the default at Carl's Jr., the default Beyond Burger uh, has cheese, I think, and has a variety of dairy ingredients on it. And so too with the Impossible Burger at Burger King, the default is not vegan, which is just underlines the degree to which this is not being fueled by, you know, a bunch of vegans. It really is being fueled by people who are making the decisions. Probably the number one decision is it's just new and interesting. And people like trying new and interesting things. Number two is probably, you know, some sort of variety of factors. Like I think when they're making food choices, they're not thinking about all of the external costs of meat production, but they understand that there are all of these external costs of meat production. If you stop somebody on the street and you say, why is meat bad? They can lay out it's inefficient. It causes animals to suffer and these other things. It's not good for me. They're eating meat not because of all of these external costs. They're eating meat because they like the taste. And so they're given the opportunity to try something that tastes the same or better and that doesn't have these other costs and they go for it. So for some people, it's health. For some people, it's environment. But for most people, it's they're hungry. It's interesting. They want to try something interesting and new. Maybe they heard that Bill Gates or Richard Branson is into it. Maybe they saw you know, one of the celebrities that is either invested in or promoting or eating it. And it just becomes sort of a hot new thing. Right now, they are producing at such a small scale that economies of scale have not even begun to kick in. It's interesting, Jim Cramer, who's a very famous, probably the most famous TV host on CNBC, which is a business channel here in the United States. He's probably the most famous guy on there. He's got a TV program called Squawk Box. And he was talking to the CEO of Burger King like two or three days ago. And he was saying, I've completely switched to the Impossible Burger. I absolutely love the Impossible Burger. I've completely switched. So I do think with sort of Veggie Burgers 1.0, pre-Beyond Meat and pre-Impossible Foods, somebody would try it because it was novel. They wouldn't like it very much and they wouldn't keep eating it. But with the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger or some of the other plant-based meats that are coming along, people try it, they love it, and they stick with it. Again, because they're, they're not eating meat because of how it's produced right now. They're eating meat despite how it's produced and paying a little bit extra for something that's healthier and doesn't give you the pangs of conscience is going to resonate with a lot of people. Impossible Foods was using wheat and potato protein in Impossible Foods version 1.0. They couldn't source enough of it. So then they went to Midwestern American soy as their primary ingredient. Beyond Meat is using pea protein and in direct response to Beyond Meat's skyrocketing demand for pea protein, a lot more pea crops have been grown in Canada and the United States. And both Ethan Brown and Pat Brown talk about the range of legumes that could be used as sourcing for the biomimicry of meat. It's because there is lots of soy that Impossible picked soy and went back to soy. It's because they were able to source the peas working, I think, with the Canadian government, as well as with pea farming trade associations in both Canada and the United States, that Beyond Meat was able to meet their demand. But the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is funding some millet characterization research through the Good Food Institute that we're doing in India. And a lot of what we're doing, especially in India, is focused on figuring out other grains that farmers can plant 
that can be turned into plant-based meat. And that will happen more and more around the world. And the idea of get big or get out, which has characterized farming over the last 50 years, probably, we can beat that back a little bit as we switch to plant-based meat and source it from a wider variety of crops. So it's really interesting. The Canadian government and, and Pierre Trudeau offered a fantastic statement maybe a week or 10 days ago as they funded the creation of a factory focused on plant-based products, including plant-based meat in Manitoba, which is in the heartland of Canada. And the Canadian government funded that at $100 million. And it's looking at processing pea protein and canola protein. And I think we're going to see lots and lots more of that as the plant-based meat market sector continues to be on fire. The first cultivated meat burger cost about $330,000 in August of 2013. Now it's going to vary company by company, but some companies are talking about a pound of meat is under $500 just, says each nugget is costing them about $50 when you incorporate all of the costs. But we're very early days in the whole cultivated meat endeavor. It's really just like cultivating a plant You know, you can take a a cutting from a plant or a seed from a plant and you bathe that seed in nutrients and the plant grows. In this case, you take a a biopsy, the size of a sesame seed from an animal, you bathe those cells in nutrients and the cells multiply and grow. Because there are no animals involved, you don't need antibiotics, which literally means anti-life. You don't need pesticides or herbicides for cultivated seafood. You're not going to have the dioxins or the mercuries that collect in the fish flesh. It is a far cleaner product at the end of the day and consequently far safer for people and their families. But it is as sort of easy and simple as cell multiplication. So you you bathe the cells in nutrients. If you want them to form into something like a chicken breast, you're going to need to do it on a scaffold that allows the cells to collect in the way that you want them to collect. And you do that in a cultivator. It looks like a beer brewery. Instead of having these vats with beer in them, you have these vats essentially with meat in them. The first cultivated meat company was Memphis Meats. It incorporated in April of 2016. It raised its first funding in October of 2015, which was just $125,000 from the Bay Area Accelerator IndieBio. And then it raised a little over $3 million in January, February of 2016, incorporated in April of 2016. At the beginning of 2016, there were no companies. At the end of 2016, I think there were eight, but probably half of them had actually raised any money. Now there are more than 50, probably 25, maybe have raised a million dollars or more. Memphis Meats has raised, I think their last round was $183 million, and they had raised a little north of $20 million before that. So roughly $205 million. But that's really sort of a drop in the bucket. More exciting than the amount of money they've raised is the fact that Tyson and Cargill have both invested in addition to people like Richard Branson and Bill Gates. The second and third largest meat companies in the world have invested in Memphis Meats, which is which is pretty exciting. But it's still very early days. Some folks are saying they're going to have sort of proof of concept products on the market as soon as next year, which may happen. But if it happens, they're going to be pretty expensive. It's going to be a little while before the price starts seriously coming down. The number one priority at the Good Food Institute, maybe even like the number one, two, and three priority, is to help governments recognize that for the same reason they're funding open access agricultural R&D, for the same reason they're funding clean energy and other energy R&D, for the same reason they're funding global health R&D, they should be funding open access R&D on the plant-based and cultivated meat side in order to basically lift all of the plant-based and cultivated meat boats and 
this whole transition can happen a lot more quickly if we can get you know millions and then billions of government dollars focused on it. These companies, their goal is not to raise live animals and slaughter live animals. They do that because that's how they get protein most profitably fed to the most people possible. But the value proposition of creating meat from plants and growing meat from cells, it makes a tremendous amount of sense that they would move into these alternative ways of making meat. Nestle, world's largest food company, is all in with their, it's not called the Incredible Burger anymore because they lost the lawsuit from Impossible Foods, but they have a plant-based meat as well. And so I think we're going to see this be something that the conventional food industry and the conventional meat industry actually gets behind more and more as the products get better and better. Even when you factor in additional energy use for cultivated meat and some of the the life cycle analyses that have been done, the climate impact is still astronomically better for cultivated meat relative to conventional meat. And it's worth noting that cultivated meat will require 99% less land than conventional meat production. And that land can be repurposed for renewable energy production, in which case 100% of cultivated meat can be powered by renewable energy, which is obviously very different from the current system. It could also be repurposed to be rewilded, to create carbon sinks. So in terms of water use, in terms of water pollution, in terms of species loss and land use, and across all of the metrics other than energy use, clean meat is a net massive advantage. And then you ask, where is the energy going to come from? And if you're freeing up 99% of the land required for conventional animal agriculture. That's plenty to deal with the energy needs. And then, of course, we've also got the things like antibiotic resistance, cruelty to animals, and pandemic prevention, all of which get significantly better with cultivated meat. I've met an awful lot of vegans who just like, they don't like the taste of meat. I think those vegans are probably not going to eat plant-based meat or cultivated meat. And if you have a sort of aesthetic aversion to eating animals, and I imagine a lot of people probably do, Um, then you're probably not going to want to eat cultivated meat. At the end of the day, I think the cultivated meat companies are not really gunning for the vegetarians and vegans. That's not their their target market, their target demographic. It's the people who like and eat meat. But if you're a vegan like me, and I, I gave up eating meat 33 years ago out of concern for the global poor and concern for the environment, and then over time came to also have concern for the animals involved, those three problems are solved by cultivating meat. So, I mean, I have eaten cultivated meat on half a dozen occasions, and I uh, expect once it's widely available to consume it regularly, because the reasons I stopped eating meat are going to be taken off the table. But I mean, it's not a vegan product. So by definition, no, vegans won't eat it. And that may mean that a lot of people decide to stop being vegan because the reasons for being vegan go away in a world where cultivated meat is available. Pat Brown at Impossible Foods would tell you that we will be at 100% plant-based meat by 2035, so that's 15 years out, 0% cultivated, and 0% regenerative. So that's his sort of line-in-the-sand prediction. In my experience, there are a lot of people who just really want to eat animal meat. And I don't know what the percentage is, but I would guess that at whatever point we have divorced meat from the need for live animals... At whatever point we have gotten to the holy grail and we have plant-based and cultivated alternatives to every type of industrial animal meat, I'm thinking it's probably going to be 60-40 cultivated plant-based. I think there will be some and probably a higher percentage than there is now regeneratively farmed meat. 
but it will just totally replace industrial animal meat, the meat that people buy because it's tasty and cheap. Probably everybody listening has a phone within your reach. And if we had been chatting 25 years ago, we would not be doing a video call. And now, in the age of COVID, an overwhelming number of the calls that we're having with people are over video chat. And if I had wanted to call you on the phone just 25 years ago, I would have had to find a landline and I would have had to pay a lot of money. And even just across the city 25 years ago, you would have had to find a landline. And now, 25 years later, we all have these phones in our pockets and we've divorced phones from the need for cords and from the need for wires. In one generation, I mean, 25 years is that historically. And yet the way that we communicate, we text message. Nobody did that 25 years ago. We Zoom or Google Meet or whatever else. Nobody did that 15 years ago. And it's a radical transformation in how we communicate that quickly. Similarly, with the camera phone was invented 20 years ago, and now something like 99% of photos are taken on the cameras in your pockets, whereas we had not exclusively analog film, but digital film was insanely expensive, and the vast majority of photos were taken on analog cameras, and you had to take the film to be developed. 20 years, again, it's nothing, and how we take pictures is radically different. The infrastructure issues are going to be different, but we really can. If we can create products that taste the same or better and cost the same or less, and we believe we can, the markets will kick in and you will see a very, very swift shift. And basically, we'll be divorcing meat from the need for live animals in the same way that long-distance communication doesn't require a wired phone and taking a picture doesn't require analog phone. There we go. I think I'll need to get Bruce back on the show for an update in the not-too-distant future. Now, one question that often pops up when plant-based meats are spoken about on the show and is a very valid question is how healthy are they? Well, firstly, we need to remember that they are by and large being designed to replace standard beef burgers, deli meats, etc. They aren't being designed to replace beans. That's not the target consumer. Secondly, often I see people stating because their ingredient list is long, or can be, they must be unhealthy. That's not how science works. What matters is health outcomes. When you eat a particular food, what happens to your blood lipids, blood pressure, weight, risk of disease, etc.? And fortunately, we are starting to get studies looking at this, comparing plant-based meats with their like-for-like traditional meat equivalents. One of these studies was the swap meat trial, which you'll hear me talk about with nutrition scientist and Stanford professor Christopher Gardner in a few weeks' time. Not to spoil the episode because it's one you'll thoroughly enjoy, but for what it's worth, when compared to traditional organic meat equivalents, the plant-based meats came out on top. They led to improvements in biomarkers of cardiovascular disease. If you're interested in learning more about that study, hearing that conversation with Dr. Gardner, please do subscribe to the show on iTunes or hit follow on Spotify and you'll be notified when it enters the world. And if you didn't hear my episode with him a few weeks ago on low versus high carb diets and weight loss, I highly recommend it. Now, before I let you go, I am regularly asked about supplements. I mentioned this in the last episode. The main ones I recommend thinking about supplementing for anyone following a plant-based diet, B12, 
be it predominant or exclusive, are B12, vitamin D, omega-3s, and iodine. If you've got my book, you can read about these in part three in plenty of detail. For those wanting to get these from a supplement in a very convenient, easy manner, the supplement I recommend is Nutrikind's Essential 8, which you can purchase from Nutrikind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com. I formulated this for a Sydney company, so rest assured the input amounts are right. And on top of those four nutrients I mentioned, the Essential 8 also contains iron, selenium, zinc, and a small amount of calcium to complement your diet. Okay, cool. We got there. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and hanging out with me. I appreciate you and look forward to doing it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.